Hey, welcome to RUF. My name is Brian Sorgenfry. I'm the campus minister. Uh, second to last one. So uh, we have almost made it through Leviticus. So I don't know how that's how's going with you. But at the least, if you've been coming, you can now somewhat honestly, somewhat, say you've read Leviticus if somebody asks you. You can, you can take that off your guilt list. Um, and we've been, we've been walking through every week and considering the theme of Leviticus that God draws near into this thing called the tabernacle. And because God, God wants to draw near to His people, there's barriers, namely our sin. But you see a God who's willing to overcome every barrier to be with us. And tonight, the barrier that He overcomes is our greed and our possessions, what we do with them. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, Black Panther. Uh, it's a, uh, it's, I think it's an incredible movie. Uh, but one of the themes, and this is not going to ruin anything if you're one of the like, three people that hadn't seen it, but one of the themes that runs through Black Panther is there's this nation called Wakanda in Africa that is hidden from the rest of the world that appears to be uh, a very poor country. But what they've hidden is the fact that they have these tremendous resources of technology and all these other things. And the debate is this. Will Wakanda use their riches, their resources, to bless the world, to help people in need, or will they keep it for themselves? And when you think about that narrative, you, you begin to realize that that is actually a question of the world, and really probably a question that runs through your heart. Will the things that I have be huddled up to make me feel secure... Or will I release them so as to share and to bless? And Leviticus 25 is going to say that the reason that that struggle is so prevalent is because there's something about possessions that go to the core of our heart that make us feel like they are our security. But God institutes this thing called the Day of Jubilee because it shows us what God is like. That God is the one who has all authority, all power, all riches. And he shares. He lets go so as to bless, so as to help others thrive. And and Leviticus 25 shows that God's heart beats for the economically poor and oppressed in a way that honestly, even if you consider yourself economically liberal in this room tonight, it'll, it'll push you to the extreme. But what I really want you to see is that when God comes near to us in Jesus, He has to make you more liberal with the way that you think about your stuff. Because if God's the one who made you, He knows that life is found in giving stuff away, not in hoarding it. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Lord, we come again on, on a night to look at Your Word. Uh, you give us Your Word because You love us. Uh, it's how we can know You. So we can know uh, your heart, that you have a, a heart for the poor, the broken, uh, the empty. And Lord, if we know ourselves at all, uh, that means uh, that's us. And so we pray uh, that we would receive uh, the truth of the gospel, uh, even in ways that it's hard uh, and shows us our selfishness, but also in a way that is liberating and helps us to come to Jesus uh, and celebrate him. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, here's Leviticus 25. I'm actually going to start in verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. 
Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return his property and each of you shall return to his clan, that fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. And this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee. And he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow together or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you'll be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. All right, using my friend Les Newsom's essential headings. Uh, we're gonna, this is about money and economics. So first we're going to look at Old Testament economics according to the Lord. Then we'll run it through the New Testament. And then we'll ask where do we fit in this idea of God's economics. All right, first... Old Testament uh, economics. One commentator I read said specifically the day of Jubilee, which is what these verses are about, is probably the most radical social and economic idea in all of the Bible. Because in Leviticus 25, God puts in place these, this set of rules that does at least two things. One, it provides a way out for everyone who, who finds themselves struggling in poverty. And secondly... It curbs the selfish and greedy nature of people's hearts. So, hang with me. This is where i got to be teaching. Let me try to explain this quickly. To make sense of what God commands, you've got to remember first that Leviticus is given to an agrarian society. He's preparing Israel to come into the promised land that he has guaranteed that they will get, and, and it will be an agrarian society. And... I don't know. Maybe if you're from the Delta or something, you'll understand this. In agrarian society, land was everything. Land was the source of all your life, of all your sustenance. It was the key possession, right? So if you had land and it produced a good crop, you and your family were good to go. But if for whatever reason, uh, whether that was due to your own laziness, whether that was due to famine, whether it was due to deaths in your family that you couldn't control... For whatever reason, uh, your, your, it, was, it was tough to keep your head above water that year, uh, and, and it wasn't a good pro, uh, produce, harvest, then you were in trouble. And what you would be forced to do to keep your head above water is to sell land. But once that land was sold, it became a little bit harder the next year to make it work. And then if things got worse... You would go into debt, and things kept getting worse. And and Leviticus 25, we didn't read all this. It talks about this. You would end up selling yourself into slavery as a hired servant to start working off your debt. 
And even as I even as I talk about that, you feel the downward spiral that can stop, that can start. And you can get in a hole pretty quickly. And what God does in Leviticus 25 is He sets up a system that ensured no Israelite would ever enter a never-ending spiral of poverty that would end in essentially economic uh, slavery. Because He puts in the stopgap measure called the Day of Jubilee. The Year of Jubilee, really, verses 8 through 22. And what is it? He said every seven period of seven years, right, after 49 years, on the Day of Atonement, a trumpet would sound. And that would mean that the year of Jubilee had begun. And what that meant is over the next year, God required every single debt had to be forgiven. Every bit of uh, property that had been sold had to be returned back to their original owner and family. And every person or or a family member who had who had gone into debt, into slavery, would be returned and set free. In other words, the day of Jubilee, everything was set right. Everybody entered back into a place of freedom and had a new beginning. And it was required by God. I want you to think about that principle, that no matter how deep of a hole that you dug... Or no matter, no matter how deep of a hole that was dug uh, for you, because it could have been things outside your control, no matter how bad things got socially, family-wise, or financially, at least once in your lifetime, you would get a second chance. The slate would be clean. There would be, it didn't matter if, if you were uh, in your situation because of bad decisions, or whether it was you just had bad breaks, or even if it was something that you were born into. God, once in your lifetime, said, we're starting over. We're leveling the the playing field. And you're going to have a second chance. And he's saying, I will not let anyone spiral into this lifelong impossible situation. So think about that on both ends. If, If that was coming for every person's lifetime at least once. On the one hand, if you were someone who was struggling in poverty and could not get out... There was always hope. There was always hope. Because if nothing else, the year of Jubilee is coming. And that kept me going. Because things will be set right again. God is going to break, at some point, the systematic and generational cycle of poverty. If you don't believe in systematic sin and systematic poverty, Leviticus 25, you're dealing with the Bible. Because it's true. And so he resets it. But also, it curbed a person who was doing well, who was on top of it, and that's great, but it curbed his greed. Because let's say that you're seven years from the, uh, from the year of Jubilee. You had to start thinking about differently about your investments, right? Because in seven years, these things that I require are going to be, I'm going to have to let them go and give them back. And in an ironic way, that made you start thinking differently and investing differently. It kept kept you from putting all your eggs in this one basket of of, of just building riches. It actually, in an odd way, forced you to not find your ultimate security in your land and your finances. And that's why God keeps saying the principle is you must fear God. You must see that everything that you have comes from me. So here's my question. Why would God instruct this? 
Why would he force this into their calendar? Let's just show what he is like. Because over and over, the God of the Bible, he's the champion of the poor. He's the defender of outsiders. He's the protector of marginalized and the disadvantaged. That's who he is. Right? If, if somebody ever asked me at some speaking engagement, they say, Brian, how would you like to be introduced? Here's what I always say. I say, tell them I'm the husband of Liza. I'm the, I'm the father of three awesome kids. And I'm the, I'm the proud campus minister of the flagship university of the state. Right? <laughs> Ole Miss. That's what I say. Why? Because those are the things I care most about. That's where most of my time is spent. That's what my life centers around. So that's how I introduce myself. How does God introduce himself to the world? Psalm 68. He identifies himself as the father of the fatherless, the protector of widows. In some form of fashion, if you really start looking at the Bible, you realize that God identifies himself or in the way that he cares, uh, that he commands care and protection of the vulnerable, poor, uh, and defenseless. It's who he is. And the reason he introduces himself like that is it must be what he's deeply concerned with. His heart must be near the poor. And look, if you're like me, we just have to deal with this. Because this is a blind spot for much of modern Western Christianity. God requires that His people are concerned about social justice. He requires compassion for all. He forbids people to take advantage of others who are financially vulnerable. He's opposed to, always opposed to reducing a person to slavery. He even resists the concentration of property and resources into the hands of a few. And he sets limits on the rich getting richer while the poor get poorer. Because the Lord is decidedly against exploitation. And that just runs against, honestly, a lot of what's in my heart. And it definitely runs against the dog-eat-dog culture of where I've got to get whatever's mine instead of thinking about being a blessing to others. But see, the inertia of our hearts is to look at the talents, the money, the time, the successes, the intellect, the possessions, to look at those and say, they're mine. And this is what's going to make me okay. But God in Leviticus 25 and elsewhere is saying, no, I gave them to you. I've loaned them to you to be a good steward. So God's expectation of his people is not greed, but generosity. And so he commands them to freely give it away. He actually forced it on a calendar. So that's the Old Testament uh, economics. What about the New Testament? So what do we do with the day, day of Jubilee, some you know, year 2018? Because it's impossible to implant this in our society. One, simply because we are not chiefly an agrarian-based economy anymore, right? Real estate's not the thing. It's still crazy expensive in Oxford, but it's not the thing. Second of all, it would be wrong to do so because of Jesus. Because when Jesus comes, and we say this every week, which is what Leviticus is looking forward to, when God draws near in Jesus, when God draws near in Jesus, the covenant people of God move from being primarily a socio-political state that was namely uh, ethnic Israel 
to be in a, to be in an expansive transnational global kingdom of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Which means, on the one hand, I'll say it, there is nothing particularly special about this piece of land in the Middle East called Israel. There's not. Because God's kingdom is going to be this whole world. And His people is a multi-ethnic a uh, multinational kingdom of God called the church. And when Jesus switched that, yes, it caused tension. And so you'll find a lot of like Paul's letters uh, in, in, uh, in the New Testament are interacting with this tension. So you can't implant it here because what Jesus did. So what do we do with it? Well, the principle... Of, of the day of Jubilee, which is calling for care for the poor, concern for social justice. Here's the deal. If you look at Jesus in the New Testament, the requirement doesn't disappear. He presses it in even more. It gets more uncomfortable, honestly. For instance, in Luke 10, there's a rich man who comes up to Jesus and he's trying to show himself as being obedient to the law. And he says that you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's correct. Go and do likewise and you will live. And, um, and he says, well, who's my neighbor? And what Jesus does is he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, which has a man in a ditch, almost dead. And he, and he says a person who essentially would be his enemy comes, takes care of this man, meets his needs at great expense to, expense to himself emotionally, physically, financially, and he takes care of it. And Jesus says, that's it. That's what loving your neighbor looks like. Feeding those in need, sheltering the homeless, removing barriers that keep people down. In other words, Jesus says, here's what loving me looks like. Social work. Justice. And if, if you the book of James, which gets terribly uncomfortable, honestly, goes against all kinds of exploitation. It says this, pure and undefiled religion. Do you know what it says? Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep yourselves unstained from the world. All that to say, when you run the day of Jubilee through the New Testament, the Christian ethic regarding money and possessions and care for people Jesus just fleshes it out in honestly shocking proportions. Because he says things like this, you cannot, you cannot serve both God and money. Why? Because there must be something about possessions that tend to go deep within our hearts and make us feel a false sense of security. And make us feel like we can depend on them for safety. It tempts us to worship them. That my sense of well-being will be in how much I possess. And there's just repeated warnings in the Bible. Including, right, Leviticus uh, 25 that's saying we must fear God. That, it, that is essentially saying this, we are foolish. Unless we realize that the nurture of our hearts tries to find security in possessions. Instead of taking God at His word and believing that Jesus is my security, that He will take care of me, that I can hold these things with open hands because of who Jesus is.
And look, I, you know, I recognize in college, most people, I don't know, money isn't, well, I, do still, I think money still is a big deal. I think you're lying to yourself if you don't see at some level old, uh, money still keeps you connected to things. Here, it does. But also, time in college is a huge resource. It's a huge possession. And God says in Leviticus and all over the Bible, if you're one of my people, you've got to give your stuff away to people in need. Because it's the best thing to guard your heart against idolatry. To say that your security is in Jesus, yet to hold on to your possessions tightly, is just to, it just says otherwise. I was at a conference a few weeks ago uh, where uh, uh, Dr. Dates was his uh, name. He was preaching and uh, it was actually celebrating uh, 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 Dr. King and some of his work. And it was so sobering because he, he asked a question. He said... How can the people who had the gospel, the conservative church in the 50s and 60s, how could they be about preaching the gospel and the liberty that Christ brings and at the same time be okay with Jim Crow? How did that happen? And it was sobering. Because what he was saying is, you can say you believe this, but if you hold your power, you hold your stuff with fear, you're lying. And we can look at that and say, oh, well, I never would have done that. But we're just lying about our hearts. We're saying our hearts are a lot different than people 40 years ago. And they're not. They're just as broken. So my question is, what do you do with the money, talents, and time that God has loaned to you? Do you share it? Do you build in things in your life that almost force you to let go? This is one of the reasons, this is going to sound like self-advertising, this is one of the reasons that every Tuesday night we have students from RUF that go help out at what we call Kids Club at the Grace Bible Facility because you share your resources of time and intellect with children who are in need of those things, who need tutoring, who need to be loved. There's pathways to do that. So... Leviticus shows us the Old Testament economics of God caring about the poor. And then when you run it through the New Testament, you realize it just gets even more radical. So comes the question, how in the world then does a God who draw near produce this radical community of generosity? How can that happen? And the answer is we've got to see ourselves in God's economy. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins it by saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Think about what Jesus just said, that the first characteristic of people in his kingdom, poverty and spirit. What does Jesus mean by that? What he means is no one is a Christian until they see that before the Lord of this universe, they are spiritually bankrupt. Before the holiness of God, we have nothing to offer because of our sin. We can't make up the gap, the gap of the hole that we have dug ourselves in called the wages of sin, which is death. We have rendered ourselves so far in a hole of spiritual debt that we cannot get out. And the wages of sin is death, which is separation from God. And I can't make it up. 
But the gospel says, but Jesus. But God in Jesus comes down. And he doesn't come as a rich man on the throne. He comes as a Jewish peasant to a carpenter family. And then one day, and this is what Josh read for us, he walks into the temple and he picks up a scroll, the Bible, and he unrolls it and he gets to Isaiah 61 and he reads a prophecy from Isaiah 61. I'm going to read it again because I want you to listen for the thing, for, for day of Jubilee language. He says this about himself because this is a prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then, and then what he does is he rolls up the scroll, he sits down, and he looks around and he says, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled. And what would that have been like? Read a prophecy about the coming Son of God who's, gonna, who's going to inject the true uh, year of Jubilee, and he says, It's about me. I'm here. Jesus just said that the day of Jubilee, the canceling of debts, the bringing freedom, the bringing good news to poor, it's about me, and right now I'm doing it. And sure enough, Jesus begins his life as a Jewish peasant, but his life ends on a cross, poor, destitute, shackled to a cross, a tree like a slave, stripped naked, What is he doing? He's bringing Jubilee to the spiritually bankrupt. He's suffering the consequences of and paying the debt of all my sin so that you can have no condemnation, so that you can be free from that debt. He's bearing the shame of all of my moral poverty by being crucified naked and providing you with a righteousness that makes you rich. And he's shackled like a slave to a cross, so that you can be free from the slavery of greed, the slavery of addictions to sex and friends and success or fill in the blank. And he did it all for us who didn't want him to die for us, don't really appreciate the fact that he loves us, and abuse the gifts that he gives us all the time. That's who he did it for. And that has to begin to change us. I read an article about a cop in Memphis, this was years ago, who'd actually been murdered in a hotel. And so at his funeral, uh, his best friend, who was also a cop, uh, made some remarks. And Bill was was the cop who had been killed. And so he started talking about Bill and said everybody knew that Bill had this deep love for homeless people in the community of Memphis. He said, I'd known him for years, and I'd, I'd, I'd noticed that it's about him. But then finally, after years of friendship, Bill took me to where uh, he was raised. He took me to the Delta. He says, we were driving around the Delta. We stopped underneath this bridge and we got out of the car and he pointed underneath the bridge and he said, that bridge was, was a house for me one winter. That's where I lived. And then he looked and he said, whenever I see homeless people, I see myself in their faces. At that point, his friend said it clicked. He understood why he had so much love and compassion for homeless. He saw himself in them. You see, when you start receiving and understanding the gracious, unmerited, rich love of Christ for you, it begins to change you. Because when you see suffering and disadvantaged and poor and hurting people, we see ourselves 
And we say, I get it. I know what it's like to be helpless. I know what it's like to be hopeless. I know what it's like that my only hope is that someone will show me undeserved mercy and grace. And someone will disadvantage themselves so that I can be free. Because that's who Jesus is. And that begins to move you from condescension towards the poor. And having a middle class spirit that says, well just get it together. And it moves you towards compassion and humility and generosity. Because you see yourself in poor people. And you have all the riches in Christ. And so you can hold it openly. That's my question. Has that happened to you? Because Leviticus in Jesus is saying one of the best measures of, of, of if you know Jesus is how you treat the poor. And I don't really like that he says that. So how do you see the socially poor on campus? Do you condescend? Do you look down on, and this isn't true, okay? But it is felt, do you look down on lower tier Greek systems, Greek houses? Is that how you think about them? Do you see financially poor people and condescend and think, just get a job? Would people who are beneath you socially, financially, emotionally, academically say, this person wants to bless me and be with me? If you're feeling guilty, don't. Because Jubilee was set in Leviticus so that everybody would get a clean slate. And everybody would have a second chance at some point in their life. And that's what I would ask you. Does that sound familiar? Do you ever look at your life and think, Man, I wish I had a second chance to do that over. I do. Do you ever look at a weekend and think, Man, I wish that hadn't happened. I wish I'd had to do over. Do you ever look at a whole year and look back and think, that's kind of disappointing. Felt like I wasted that year. I got good news for you. Jesus is your jubilee. He's the God of second, third, fourth, five hundred, a thousand new chances. Because whenever you need forgiveness, He'll take the debt. He'll give you a new beginning. I'll end with this. There's a ministry um, I know about because a friend of mine um, has been involved. Uh, and it is it's particularly for couples who experience pretty major sin against each other in marriage. And uh, they at least as best they can want to try to work it out. And so they commit to walking through this process uh, that always ends if they make it with this big dinner where they invite their friends and family and they basically tell the story. And this one that my friend was involved with ended up being um, a husband and a wife. And while the wife was out of town, uh, she discovered that her husband had had an affair. But then as, as kind of the onion was peeled back, she realized that he had had multiple affairs, multiple one-night stands whenever she was gone. And uh, they tried to make it work. They walked through this process. There's a lot of repentance. Um, but they, they made it. They decided... Uh, we're going we're gonna to go for it. We're going to stick it out. And so they have the banquet. Uh, they invite all the families and friends. And he stands up and tells his story. Tells, tells the people he slept with. Tells the ways that he, that he hurt his wife. And as you can imagine, it's extremely hard to hear. Lots of tears. And then his wife stood up and said this. You've always been the love of my life. 
I'm so proud of the man that you are and the man you've become, and I love you. Don't you think that felt like a day of jubilee? A second chance? A new beginning? This is what Jesus does. He comes into every part of your life where there's shame, where there's embarrassment, where there's sin, where there's addiction, where there's ugliness, and he says, you've always been the love of my life. I'll always delight in you. Come to me, it's clean. It's no more. Here's a second chance. Here's a third chance. Here's a 50th chance. In Jesus, the year of Jubilee has happened. And when he returns and the trumpet sounds, the Jubilee will be in full realization and everything will be made right. My question is, do you enter by faith the riches of Jesus and experience that? It's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jubilee. Uh, Would you uh, help us to come to you poor and empty uh, for the first time or for the thousandth time and believe that you're a God who loves to show mercy. You delight to show mercy is what the prophets say. And so we, we come tonight bringing our poverty of spirit and trust uh, that in Christ you smile on us and you take our debt. Uh, that would be worth celebrating tonight. In your son's name I pray. Amen.